Seasons greetings, everyone. You are in Le Vital Core Salon, and my name is Kara Snyder, and I help frazzled type A women get their Sierra Hotel India Tango together. And yes, those are aviation call letters, and you'll understand why in a few moments. One of the ways I support other women is through this podcast. My job as host is to introduce you to women who are out there in the world and making an impact without letting BS and burnout slow them down. And today's guest is going to be no exception to that. I will introduce you to Patty Wilson in a moment. But first, I want to kind of make sure everyone's okay. I know we are knee-deep in the holiday season. We've Zoomed past Thanksgiving. We're knee-deep in Hanukkah. We are moving towards the deep end of the pool, heading towards Festivus and Christmas and Kwanzaa and Boxing Day and then New Year's. And I know this is a really, really tough time of year for a lot of you listening. I'm talking to you, overscheduling addicts and recovery and recovering perfectionists and imposters and people just trying to juggle just way too much at this time of year. And I know how hard it is. And if you want some health and lifestyle motivation that is doable and actionable, and practical and just get you thinking about how you can start getting the train on the tracks again, I want to encourage you listeners to sign up for my newsletter. It comes out twice a month with health and lifestyle motivation and questions for self-inquiry and actionable items and recommendations for different foods or websites or products that can be helpful to you. And also, you'll be notified when a new podcast rolls out, so you can come back and join us again. So if you want to get down with that, you can find it at Le Vital Core Salon. So that's L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S Salon, S-A-L-O-N dot com. I know the French name just kind of throws everyone all the time. I really didn't think about this when I was thinking about the name and its meaning, which is about banding women together for a common cause and being vital as we do that. That's probably an apt segue to talk about today's guest, Patty Wilson. Patty Wilson is currently an operations manager at, and I'm going to see if I can get this right, Northern California Terminal Radar Approach Control, or TRACON. And prior to this position, she was an air traffic controller and in various different positions in that field for the last 29 years. She is also currently serving her second term as president of the Professional Women Controllers. And this is not to be confused with PricewaterhouseCoopers, which my mind immediately goes to. Professional Women Controllers is a nonprofit organization encouraging women to enter and remain in the air traffic control field. And outside of all of that, she's doing philanthropic work with Zonta International and got her start in the Air Force. 
Patty really brings a breadth and depth of experience and wisdom to this conversation. And like every episode in the Vital Course Salon, we sort of zoom all over, but there's lots of really good nuggets in this conversation. So I encourage you to dive in and join us. You can't know how excited I am to talk to Patty. This started out with an idea, I think back in like April maybe of this year, where I was like, who are women in really stressful jobs? Like what are some of the most stressful jobs out there? And I immediately thought of air traffic controllers. And it took a few months just to kind of track down the professional women controllers and get the interview approved by the FAA and make sure that everything was all above board and that Patty had the questions and then getting our schedules together, which can be really difficult because we're both busy women. So it is so exciting to finally have Patty on the podcast and to learn what it's like to be an air traffic controller. Let's just head over to the interview. Voila, meet Patty. Hey, Patty, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. How are you today? Excellent. <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> you must have the day off from work. <laughs> I do. Makes it a good day. You have been an air traffic controller, and you're also the president of the Professional Women Controllers. Can you get us up to speed with what an air traffic controller actually does? So it's funny. First, I think I'll start by telling you what we're not. Uh, What we are not (laughs) is the person when you are taxiing in an airplane um, and you pull up to the gate and you see that person standing there with two flashlights waving them around in the air so the pilots can see them. Uh, That is what we're not. And that's generally (laughs) what most people think of when they think of air traffic controllers. And for us, we're like, no, that's that's the dude out there helping to park the airplane. Very important person. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But he's not that person is not an air traffic controller. So what we are, though, is we really are about there's about 15,000 of us around the country. And we are the voice behind getting you from your departure airport to your destination airport. And we are the ones who actually taxi you out to the runway. We clear you for takeoff. We then hand you off to another air traffic controller who's in a uh, radar facility. Uh, And we literally tell the pilots what to do with that airplane through every single phase of flight. So it's a, it's a pretty important job. We keep them, we keep airplanes separated from each other. We tell airplanes about each other. Um, There's a certain amount of, um, spacing or separation that is required between airplanes, and we maintain that. So it's a very complicated job. It's a complicated title that actually covers some very different things that we do as controllers. So most people will think of an air traffic controller as the person in the control tower. That is the most obvious way to see us because you can see that at the airport. All the rest of us that are in radar facilities uh, you don't see us, so you probably wouldn't even know that you're driving past a, a radar facility. Um, you could pass one every day on your way to work and have no idea it's there. So we're the ones that are definitely behind the scenes, and, and most people don't even know what we do uh, as far as the radar controllers are concerned. But that's where the majority of us are at, is in that arena. 
And I'll let you ask me some more questions to narrow down the uh, scope of our conversation. <laughs> of course. Because I could talk forever on this stuff. <laughs> I'm glad you can. That's why you're here. This is so fascinating to me because I think you're right. I think at least I made it past the first misconception of, of what an air traffic controller is, but I always <laughs> picture it. And I think I mentioned this when we spoke recently, you know, that it, I picture your job as the person in Top Gun that's getting the coffee spilled on them when he does the flyby too yes. close. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is a group of us. Uh, that definitely does represent the group of us. But that, and that is basically what people think of when they think air traffic. But then you've got to put your pictures yourself in a room with no windows, uh, us staring at, sitting in front of a radar screen and talking to, you know, I could be talking to 5, 15, 20, depending on how much airspace I'm watching, different airplanes at a time. Uh, so then you really have to start thinking in a three-dimensional way. So if you start picturing... So imagine you're driving your car, but now you're you're spacing it based. You're trying to avoid cars on every level. So you're you're trying to avoid cars above you, below you, and then laterally as well. And that's what we do: is we think totally three dimensional, and the fact that we we kind of surround you as an airplane in a bubble of safety. Can you kind of picture that? Yeah, totally. And what's neat is, I guess I always thought. When you taxied off the runway, you took air. Once you got so far away from the airport, I thought it was like handed over to the pilots. I mean, it is handed over to the pilots in some respect. But it's what you're saying is we are being guided by someone on the ground the whole time until we get to the next air traffic controller at the actual destination airport. Is that right? Yeah, you're actually... In it, when you're flying across the country, you are the, those pilots are talking to air traffic controllers the whole distance. So as soon as I clear you, taxi you out to the runway, and I'm the tower controller, that's going to be somebody in the, the, the control tower, and I clear you for takeoff, I tell you to contact departure. Now, the departure is going to be somebody in the radar facility that's going to continue climbing you up to altitude, to your cruise altitude, because you know how they get on the airplane, you'll, they'll say, we're going to be cruising at 38,000 feet, blah, 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 blah. Well, we're the ones that are going to get you from the ground up to 38,000 feet. And we're going to keep you safe in the process. And, you know, you'll, there'll be some leveling off at altitude, you know, based on where you are and the amount of traffic in the airspace. Uh, but, yeah, we, we take you all the way to the top and then back down again through all those other airplanes and all the other airspace to get you back on the ground. Got it. Got it. So you mentioned a little bit about what your typical work day or work week, it sounds like you're in a windowless room in front of screens all day, right? Is that what it yeah. looks like? What's going on in the room? Paint us the picture, if you will. Uh, so um, let's see, how's the best way to get this to, for you guys to understand me? So imagine you're, you're in a room and everybody's got a TV or computer screen in front of them, a big computer screen. Uh, and on that screen, I can actually set that up to where I'm looking at a specific amount of airspace uh, that I'm going to be controlling traffic in. And all around me are other controllers that are looking at different parts of airspace that they're controlling traffic in. And literally, we're working together, and I'm taking one airplane, moving it through my airspace to hand it off to another controller who's working that next sector of airspace. And this happens all the way across the country when you're flying. So you're you're... If you're flying from California to D.C., gosh, I can't even think of how many controllers you'd actually talk to, but given time, I could actually give you a specific number. But, you know, you're, you're going to talk to 20, 
25 different controllers going across the country, at least. Whoa. So this is a little bit mind-blowing to me because I guess the the preconception I had was, like I said, the pilot is doing all this work, but there is literally this enormous team of people that are guiding the plane there. Yes. Fascinating. And it is a, it is a team effort between the, not only between the controllers, but the pilots as well. I mean, because, I mean, we're dealing with everything from your general aviation, I'm flying a Cessna 172, you know, that holds four people, the weekend flyer, if you will. And you're also dealing with the very professional, you know, the, the person who's flying the Boeing 777, you know, from San Francisco to Singapore. So the level of uh, ability that you're dealing with, too, as far as all these people working together for the system to be safe, it can be very diverse. So communication has to be at the bedrock of your skill set, no? Oh, it's everything. How does it show up? I, I feel like my brain is about to explode with 14 different questions here. Because you, you have to be communicating with your peers in the room. You're communicating with pilots on all ends of the spectrum. Were you always, yeah, I guess, were you always a good communicator? No. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll tell you right now, air traffic controllers, and I and I say this in a very general, general way. So there's there are air traffic controllers who don't fall into this mold at all, right? But we are very much, um, I tell you what to do, and you do it, people. I mean, we are we are people who are used to immediate gratification in our career field, right? If I say Southwest fourteen fifty two to send and maintain five thousand, and you come back and you say no, I'm gonna be like, it's like what? It's like no, that's <laughs> <laughs> you know we don't hear no in our in our actual job very often we get a response and you do what you're told right so you take that kind of a personality who is used to being able to go to work and do this do this do this do this and everybody does what we say and you try to translate that into the regular world I know one guy it was so funny <laughs> this made me laugh so hard His, he, he comes home from work one day and you know, he hasn't decompressed all the way yet or whatever. But basically, the, his wife looks at him and goes, would you stop talking to the kids like they're airplanes? Stop. And it, it just made me laugh because that's <laughs> so true. You know, we're used to doing that and we're used to instant gratification. We also work in an environment where, so I'll be working my sector, but I'm also answering landlines. So I'm getting phone calls from other people. I'm doing coordination that you don't hear on the radio at all. I'm coordinating with the people next to me. Um, you know, there's... It's funny because it will tell you, I, as you know, scientists will say there's no such thing as multitasking. <laughs> and I agree with that. You can't put 50% of your attention on this and 50% of your attention on that and, and be successful. I would say what controllers do is we just actually move from topic to topic very quickly. So, you know, I could be looking at you at Southwest 1452 saying, okay, there's going to be a conflict over here, answering a landline at the same time and, you know, doing some some annotations on paperwork or whatever. Um, and it's not that I'm necessarily multitasking. I think I, we just move from one event to the next event very, very quickly. So when you ask if we're good communicators, we are, we are good at what communicating what we need to do in this job. Are we good communicators outside of this? Does that translate really well to the outside world? I say no because I actually have to check myself when I get in environments that aren't with controllers. And how I communicate, because 
we live in a world where we interrupt people. We are interrupted on a regular basis, no matter what we're doing. And you stop, you address it, and you go back to what you were doing a second ago. So interruptions to us are just a norm. And for me to have an actual conversation with somebody who's not a controller, I've got to consciously get myself to shut up so they can finish their sentence. (laughs) (laughs) And also, it must be painful for you when you're talking to a non-controller and they don't switch back to, like, they don't switch in between tasks as fast as you do. Like, do you find yourself, like, snapping and, like, wanting people to catch up sometimes? Yeah. (laughs) So funny you say that. My biggest, and now, this is probably one of, personally, this is one of my biggest faults, is that um, I'm an extremely task-oriented person, which does work out well being a controller. Um, But I tend to, I'm so task-oriented that I just want to get things done. You know, so it's like, (laughs) give me a problem, I'm going to fix it, but I'm going to fix it right then. And I don't need a lot of fluff to go with it, just give me the facts. I truly think if I could talk in bullet statements with people, (laughs) I could get a lot more done. Because, you know, don't give me the fluff. I just want the facts. Give me what I need to know, and then let's move on. So um, I say personally for me, being a controller works out really well. But, yeah, I have to really check myself on on the other part. You know, the, the what do I want to say, the softer, the parts of it. I have to laugh because I feel like I'm a type A woman, and my first career out of school was – working in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy as a CPA. So I, I have that left brain, right brain sort of thing going. And I have to laugh because like in conversations like this, I'm it's such a delight to listen and ask questions and have the conversation be really fluid. And similarly in client sessions where I'm working with women one-on-one, but when I get down to business and it's time for me to implement some new piece of software or make some change to a process or do anything like more on the hard skill side or technical side of things, everything's a bullet point to me. Like I just, I think like that. I'm ready to write a speech. I'm ready to craft an answer. Like it's always bullet points. (laughs) And it's funny because, uh, yeah, I actually had that conversation with somebody of the day trying to explain. It's like, don't, don't be offended if I'm just moving forward. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's not that I don't want to talk to you. It's, you know, it's like, I don't, it's not that I don't want to interact with you and, and talk with you, but if you've come to me with a problem, then we got to fix the problem first before we move on. <laughs> I love that warning. I, don't be offended if I'm just moving forward. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny. Cause I actually, I don't know if you've ever done some of those personality things. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we just did one with the, Strength Finders, I think it was. And I actually sent this to my new board of directors um, so that they would understand where, the, where I'm coming from when I do things. Because we do a lot, some, some of our board meetings we do via telecon, which is extremely difficult, by the way, when you can't see people. Um, yes. But I happen to know that. It's like, you need to understand where I'm coming from so that you don't think I'm being mean to you. Because yes. I'm just trying, I'm not trying to roll, I'm not trying to bulldoze over you, but I, you know. And and that gets kind of lost in translation, especially if you can't see each other. So, and that's sorry, a brilliant. I I <laughs> no, and that's a brilliant point. I used Strength Finder or the 2.0 version, whatever it is these days, with clients all the time. Like before, usually I ask them at the first session if they've done it, and if not, I usually gift them a copy 
if they become a longtime coaching client because it's so valuable a resource to know what people's strengths are and then to be able to back up and work, see them work from the place of strength. And then for me as a coach to, to be able to figure out how to best motivate them and understand them and how to set them up, up for success in the process. That's right, such a smart absolutely. move on your part. Oh, well, thank you. Very cool. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'll send them to you. you you'll giggle at my strength finders. I think you'll get a, you'll laugh at them. Oh, please. I love these reports about people. <laughs> I could read them all the time. <laughs> Once I took it, I made my husband take it. I've asked friends to take it. I asked... Um, a virtual assistant that works with me, Darlene. I was like, have you taken StrengthsFinder? And she's like, no. And then immediately sent it over. <laughs> she's like, I couldn't resist. It's funny. It is. It is and really funny because I do find that I surround myself with people who make up where I don't have any of those. No way. Yeah, my mentor is, and she's also become one of my best friends, but she ha- I have... I have no green. I only have two colors in mine. I have zero, zero green, though, and I know this about myself, and she's one of those people who does research. You know, she likes to do research. She's a natural researcher, a natural learner. I mean, trying to get me to read the instructions on something is, you know, it it could be life-threatening, and I'm probably still not going to read them. (laughs) (laughs) My my husband had to force me into an iPhone. (laughs) Because you were comfortable with your old phone. At least you picked a really simple phone. Oh, that's true. Well, he I pretty much told us, like, either you're going to read all the directions or it's going to be so intuitive that I don't have to do anything besides turn it on. <laughs> so, Perfect. So kudos to Apple. Yes. I always say with, with anyone who's migrating over to Mac products, when you open it and you start to use it, you have to think, what would my, like, 91-year-old grandmother who knows nothing about those little computers do in this situation because that's usually the most intuitive thing and that usually is the answer i i found that when i migrated from a windows way of thinking over to mac i was like what would pauline do (laughs) other than like touch (laughs) the screen what's the next thing she would do (laughs) that's funny i love that (laughs) so patty i want to ask you a question how did you choose this as a profession or did it choose you? Um, I fell into it on accident. Uh, I was, I literally joined the Air Force when I was 18. And I kind of find it. Basically, the Air Force saved my life. I was on the path of nowhere positive as a teen, as getting out of high school. Yeah. So I, I realized I had to at least the, the self the uh, of self-awareness to realize I was on a path to know her positive. So I joined the Air Force. And when I went into the recruiter's office, they couldn't lie to me because my dad is retired military. So they had the, they knew that. Right, I told them that right up front. So I'm like, okay, no BS. You can't lie to me and tell me that it's going to be great to be a cook or to be, you know, an MP, uh, which would be military police. None of those jobs are fun, at least in my mind. But so when I went into the recruiter's office, uh, he basically said, he goes, or you could, you know, I'm looking at the list. He goes, and I said, so air traffic control, I had been in a control tower as a teenager um, once on a tour. And I remembered that visit. And he goes, yeah, air traffic controllers, he goes, they tell pilots what to do. And I go, oh, I like telling people what to do. (laughs) Sign me up for that one. 
that's literally how I became a controller. Because <laughs> like they tell people what to do and they don't argue with you. And I'm like, I love that idea. That's the perfect world, right? I mean, I, when I go out and talk about air traffic, the one thing I say, air traffic control is the perfect job. The only job that would be better for Patty would be having my own radio talk show where I could hang up on people I didn't like. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to look at people. You don't have to wear a uniform. You don't have to be nice to people. You just have to do your job and do it well. That's what we care about for controllers. So it's awesome. <laughs> Oh my God. So you I- really started this path at 18 years old. I mean, how does it work in the Air Force? Like, do you begin training yeah, so, for that um, particular role immediately or? Well, you got to go through all the basic training, basic military stuff first. So get through all the basic military stuff first and they send you to tech school. And um, the FAA and the military are similar in this respect is, you know, the uh, Air Force has a tech school. I think it's still in Mississippi. And the FAA has a tech school, which is in Oklahoma City. And they do, they have a very intense, both, both do a really intense training to, before you even, you've got you've to show a certain level of skill before you even make it out of the, out of the classroom part of it to, to go to a facility to train. But it's, it's classroom training, and then you go to your, your first base or your first facility, and it's on-the-job training. So you really are plugging in with somebody, talking to airplanes, with somebody plugged in next to you who can override you um, while you're while you're training. So we, it's done. It starts with simulation and book work and those kinds of things. And then if you can show that you're proficient at that level, then we let you go out and talk to real, real airplanes. But you're you're constantly be you're with somebody else who's a journeyman controller. Okay, so this is the air traffic control equivalent of a driver's ed car with the person sitting in yeah. the passenger seat with the brake. <laughs> yep. So how long does this training go on? Because it seems like such an intense and detailed job all at the same time. So I would say, so if you're coming off the street, as in you've got no background at all in this. So you've got, you know, you've been doing all kinds of other things that had nothing to do with aviation and you apply for this job and walk in um, I would say the average, and it really, oh, Kara, it, it does really run the gambit. Because if you go to a small level facility, if you go to a place, um, you know, that doesn't have any commercial traffic, it's not like a San Francisco or a LaGuardia or something like that. It's more like um, Livermore, California. You know, small, just little airplanes and, and not a lot of volume. Because we get paid by, for lack of a better way to say it, we get paid by the airplane. So the busier, the more traffic a, a facility has, than the higher paid the controllers are, which makes sense, right? Yeah, because you need to be um, just on point even more. Exactly. So uh, we do kind of get placed, I say by the airplane, that's not really how it works, but it is by complexity and things like that, that uh, uh, how we're paid. So it's basically the less experience you have, the more time we give you to, to learn it. Uh, but there is a limited amount of time that we can give you. So based on your experience level, let's say you're coming to work and you have zero air traffic experience and I want to train you on position A. Well, for somebody with no experience, maybe I give you 120 hours of training on that position. Whereas if it was somebody with that's coming from another facility, maybe they got air traffic background, they only get half that much time to do it. Got it. So there's there's kind of this... It's probably more defined than I'm going to allude to. 
But basically, if your experience is less coming in, you get more of a training time, but that training time is finite. And it's basically sink or swim. Like by the end of that, you either need to be an air traffic controller or you need to figure out another type of employment. Yeah, and that really, you know, it really is it. Um, So we have controllers that come in and will come to a very busy facility maybe um, and not be successful. And then we'll look for, the agency will look for other facilities, you know, lower level facilities that need staffing that they could possibly be successful at. It's not. It, it's not automatically. If you're not successful at one facility, you're fired from the agency. Um, it is obviously going to be based on the needs of the agency where they need you most, and if there's a position to put you, at where you know it's a balance between where do you want to go, but the agency will always have the 51 percent of this is where we need you. You know, so you may not want to go there, but this is where we need you. So if you want to keep stay employed, you're, you're going to move to somewhere else. So, uh, but the agency does a really good job of trying to help people be successful. Um, you know, we do all everything, you know, if somebody's not successful at one place, it's like, okay, where else could, could they be successful? Do they show a tendency to be able to do the job? You know, there's a whole review process that goes into this. So I'm, I'm definitely simplifying it uh, for the sake of time and everything with this. But yeah, it's a, it's a very intense process and, um, I think the FAA does a really, really good job of, of trying to support everybody in there, but then we realize that not every, this is not a job meant for everybody. You know, that some, in fact, it, I think it's interesting. I think, uh, and we see this, I don't want to blame millennials or say, say that it's any one generational mix. You know, cause you, you, I feel like the poor millennials get picked on a lot. But, <laughs> but um, it's, there's a sense of entitlement out there sometimes that I think people, when they get hired, to be air traffic controllers, they think, okay, I'm hired. Yay. I'm an air traffic controller. You're not, I mean, you are not an air traffic controller until you are certified, a certified professional controller at that facility. I mean, you can get, you can get one rating, two ratings, three ratings, but until you get every rating required of you to work at that facility, you're not successful until you're hundred percent complete. Does that make sense? Got it. So there is, for lack of a better term, a skill set. Like I'm picturing it almost like boxes that you need to check. Like you have to demonstrate this skill. You have to demonstrate this skill. You have to demonstrate this one. Yes. And at that point, this is officially your job. Yeah. So, I mean, I could make it, let's say I have to certify on six different sectors at my facility to become a certified professional controller. I can make it up to five and be successful and still fail on that six. And I'm I'm not going to be successful at that facility. Got it. And then I assume because it's the aviation industry that there are all sorts of compliance checks and things like that to make sure that not only have you demonstrated this, but you are remaining proficient in these these skills. Yes. Yes, correct. We have recurrent training. We have audits, uh, evaluations, all kinds of things that are consistently happening uh, throughout the system to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and doing it well. So it's amazing, Patty. My brain is moving in like eight different directions as we're talking because I feel like there's all this compliance and complexity around just the the position for people all over the country, anyone in this particular job. Then there's all of these conditions at each individual location. Then there's all these personalities that you're surrounded by. And then... I'm picturing the work itself 
being really intense and stressful is what does that look like? Just so I can kind of understand it. Like what happens when you roll into work? So it's, it's kind of funny. I think, um, I'm sure everybody would have a very different or a slightly different answer to this question. Uh, when you're in training, there is nothing but stress. (laughs) There's nothing, there's nothing good about training. It sucks. It's, you know, you're constantly, you know, you know, you're being evaluated of every single thing that you're doing. People are, you know, somebody standing behind you writing stuff down, you know, I mean, I don't care what job you're learning, knowing that you're constantly being watched and evaluated. That's just, it's not fun for anybody, you know, but it is part of the process and it's just the way it is. Um, so I would say that, you know, when you're in training, it's just, it's, it's just not fun. <laughs> but when you're done and you're working that sector by yourself and it's busy, it is such an amazing adrenaline rush. And I, and it's not like, you know, it's not like a high of somebody, you know, I don't know. It's just, you just, you're in it and you're involved in it. And it's just, and you're the one controlling everything that's happening at that sector and you're seeing it and you're making the decisions making adjustments as you need to. It really is. It's just, it's just a great feeling of success. And when I would get up off a position and get relieved and, you know, somebody else takes over that sector, I would just walk away and I would know that I did a good job, you know, that everybody was separated, everybody was lined up perfectly. That I, and, you know, you just had a, an immediate sense of success when you got up from position knowing that you just kicked, kicked butt, you know, throughout that session. So I don't know that I felt stressed like that stress like a negative it was it was a really positive gratifying stress I guess for lack of a better phrase got it and I'm sure any other type a women listening to everything that you just described are probably like shaking their heads up and down or you know maybe their palms are sweating like I found myself like thinking oh my god to just go to work and be evaluated on such a micro level for hours every day and like every move evaluated every breath you take every micro decision (laughs) judged that sounds so intense but then at the same time to your point like you get this this immediate hit of gratification and just being able to sort of step back it's so fascinating the duality i actually asked i was running a um a mentor program out of my facility here in California. And I had a, a psychiatrist come down and we were doing something along the lines of strength finders. It was a different program at the time. But um, I asked her, I said, so what do you think about air traffic controllers? And I, I will never forget this because it, it hit home with me. So, cause it's so true. We are, we are just arrogant individuals, <laughs> but, but the way she described it, she goes, well, air traffic controllers are really interesting. She goes, because they have a God complex. And and I thought this was really fascinating. She goes, a lot like doctors get a God complex because you have lives in your hands on a regular basis. Um, she said that controllers tend to have that God complex as well. And along with that comes a sense of entitlement. Um, you know, because you have all those lives in your hand that you should be able to have this or this or whatever, you know, when you come to work. And I thought that was just really fascinating because I've shared that with a lot of controllers since I've heard that because I think it's true. We do. We get a little full of ourselves. Actually, we get a lot full of ourselves sometimes. And then we need to come back to, you know, kind of get grounded on. We're still public servants. And and I think that's one of the things that sometimes the, the generation coming in today doesn't have that we had as my generation. 
when I took this job, um, I took this job knowing that I am a public servant. I work for the federal government and, you know, and coming out of the military, taking this job was even, uh, probably even made it even a stronger commitment for me because of my military background. But, you know, this really is a career and, and it's an amazingly, it's an amazing job for how we get what we're first off, we're paid very well. We have great benefits, but it is, it's just the most, one of the most satisfying jobs. And I, you know, and it really, it, it, it does rank up there to me with the uh, doctors and things because we are handling thousands and thousands of lives every day. And I think sometimes we as individuals need to be reminded about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think that gets lost a little bit sometimes in the shuffle. Well, that's a great point. And my next question then is around that. How do you get grounded? Like, how do you stay humble and out of that place of entitlement? So one of the things I always try to communicate with folks is, first off, never forget where you came from. And secondly, don't ever forget those are people on those planes. And that's going to sound really weird when you when I say that out loud, especially to somebody who's not in the industry, because you're like, how could you forget that there are people on those planes? Well, you can't, you can't take it so seriously. And, I, and I hopefully this comes across right, because we take it very, very seriously. But if you take it to the point where you start picturing grandma and grandpa and everybody on those airplanes as individuals, I think you can wrap yourself around the axle and then you will not be a successful controller. So you actually get distracted. So it is quite similar to being a doctor. I know I've had doctors as clients and a lot of the stress that that manifests for them in their professional life is having to stay in that role of doctor when sometimes you deeply want to be a human, right? Like having to keep keep very neutral in the face of incredibly stressful work. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's, it's kind of weird. It's like, I used to, I remember when I first got into it, I, I used to think, wow, it's kind of like a voice controlled video game. You know, it's like, literally, I'm telling them to turn right, I, I watch the airplane turn right, you know. Um, and I kind of thought of it like that, because you have to find a way to balance that, that way of thinking, right? Because, I mean, you could, you could actually freeze yourself with fear if you start imagining how many lives are out there airborne right now at this moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, literally thousands. Like, you probably see in a single shift more lives than a doctor may see in, what, five years, ten years, their entire career? Yeah, I mean, so, for example, Northern California Tracon is the facility I work at, and we we are always in the top five of the busiest facilities, Tracons in the country. Um, you know, and that's averaging roughly 5,000 operations a day. That's 5,000 airplanes that we talk to in our airspace in one day. That's and bonkers. That, and those are, so that's what, I mean, that's a lot of traffic and you're thinking about, you know, and it's everybody. So, you know, everything from the trip, the, the Boeing 777 to the Cessna 172. So you could be talking to 600 people on that airplane and five in this airplane. So... But even uh, if you just pick, what's an average number? A thousand, right? Maybe for the flights that you're looking at. Like to your point, like there could be a Cessna with four people on it and there could be an Airbus with how many people do they hold? 
I mean, oh, they, uh, yeah, those big airplanes can hold up to 500, 600 people, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, you, you definitely need to keep that balance of realizing that, yes, this is real, this is serious. Um, I think, like, with a, a lot of jobs like this, I would say firemen, policemen, doctors, we handle our stress kind of with a dark sense of humor. As and the daughter so of a police officer we, and police chief, yes, <laughs> I get it. Okay, so you know where I'm coming from, because... It is. It's. I mean, if, I, I think it's, you know, some of the comments we might make off the cuff to each other, it's, they're not serious comments, but it is a way of handling stress. You know, there's a lot of sarcasm out there and, and you know, those kinds of things. And, I, and that dark sense of humor, I think, actually is a, helps us handle stress in a weird way. And this is something I'm incredibly fascinated about because, I mean, thinking back to, I don't know, the early 80s, I don't know if you remember this game, Perfection, where it was like this plastic board with all these little different shaped pieces, and you pushed the board down, and then you had to hurry up and get all the pieces in the slots before the board popped up and <laughs> sent the I do remember pic- that. <laughs> right? I feel like listening to you talk, yeah. I may have missed my calling as an air traffic controller because that game, that game was like where it was at for me. And yet I would be, as a kid looking back, I'm like, my stomach would hurt. I'd be like practically sweating sometimes, like trying to get all the pieces in. And I picture your <laughs> job and your day kind of like that, where you're just like so intensely focused and it everything has to happen correctly, right? Like there's no choice. It's not like the game where like the pieces fly off the board and then you have to start over. Like that starting over would be catastrophic. So right. I guess... I'm, there are so many questions that I'm thinking of, and maybe I'll just it's start like, from the beginning of your day. But what does what do you have to tell yourself, like as you're heading into work? Like, is there anything that you do to kind of keep everything in perspective and keep cortisol in check and just get your focus on point? Um. So I've been doing this now for I'm coming up on almost thirty years of being in the industry. So I'm trying to think back to the beginning, what I used to do. One of the things I would definitely do is I'd be looking at the weather (laughs) because weather is everything in aviation, right? I mean, it dictates the runways we land on, you know, how, how quickly you're going to get from point A to point B if there are thunderstorms in the way. Um, So actually my drive to work would actually be taking a look at the weather and figuring out uh, which ways are we going to be landing today? Um, Those kinds of things. Now, having said all that, when we moved our facility up here to the to northern in Northern California to the Sacramento area, and we have a ton more airspace than we used to have, it doesn't really do me any good because I'm actually working traffic in a different place than um, where we live. <laughs> so, so that preparation went away because now when I go to work, I actually have to read the weather to figure out what the weather is going to be like at the airport I'm working traffic in. Wow. So you're actually, and it's totally different. And the the born and raised New Englander in me is laughing because, you know, we have an expression where it's like, what's the weather like? We're like, I don't know. Ask me again in 15 minutes because it could change <laughs> like nothing. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I would say, though, that, you know, that, that perspective kind of changes. So I'm in management now. It's a huge difference now being in management and being a controller. I will still always say with 100% conviction, the best job in the world is being an air traffic controller 
because your inbox doesn't fill up. <laughs> so, you know, I can go home and there could be delays for San Francisco all day long. It doesn't matter. I still come in the next day and I come into and you know, my regular day. I don't have to worry about stuff stacking up on me the next day. Whereas in management, now all of a sudden you've got the HR stuff and everything else you deal with where your inbox does get full. So that's why being a controller, it's like you go home from your day and you're done. So really, you play perfection all day, and then at the end of your shift, it's time to go home. Like, Yeah. How do you decompress? How do most controllers feel at the end of a shift? And how long is a shift, just so we have some perspective? So we can't work more than 10 hours in a day. Uh, The average shift is probably an eight-hour day. Um, Well, nothing less than an eight-hour day, anyway. Uh, but not to exceed 10. Uh, we have a certain amount of time of rest that's required in between our shifts because we're shift workers. So a lot of us are working at 24-hour facilities. So honestly, I would say most controllers are tired all the time. We just don't know it. Because you're just so conditioned to it at that point. Yeah. I mean, honestly, so I've been a shift worker my entire life. So I went to the Air Force, 24-hour facility. So you're working in the military. It was two days, two swings, two mid-shifts, midnight shifts. And the FAA, you, you start out with two swing shifts, two day shifts, two a mid-shift. So as you can see, the, the schedule is very compressed. So there will be, I mean, I could actually in a two-day period work almost work three shifts. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Whoa. I could come to work and work from one to nine, come back the next morning, have nine hours in between my shifts to open with a day shift to leave to that afternoon to come back in and open and work a midnight shift so it's I would actually say that most controllers are tired and they just don't know it because that's that's the environment we live in you know our circadian rhythm is totally screwed up all the time (laughs) we're never it's it's funny I know guys that go home and and they've got little kids and and uh, I guess oh did you get any sleep for the mid and they go yeah he goes actually he goes I finally figured out how to get sleep before I mid he goes I sleep in my closet because it's oh the quietest God. place he can find in his house. <laughs> so he's put a bed in his closet so he can sleep uh, before his midnight shift. So it's kind of a weird thing. It's, uh, and that's partly why, and I think that's one of the biggest reasons why controllers have and will continue to have, I am sure, uh, the early retirement piece is because literally this, this job is very hard on you physically because you're never yes. really rested. <laughs> You know, my head was exploding as you were talking because as a health and lifestyle strategist, I mean, I'm I'm working with a lot of women who are in a deep place of burnout. And it's just in terms of what you were sharing, I was like, oh, my God, what is going on with them in terms of cortisol? We know their circadian rhythm is broken. So like the hormonal reset across the board is not happening every night. When you're not getting enough sleep, like cognitively, that's just eating away at you. And again, you're not getting that reset of all the the feel-good hormones. Oh, my God. So it really is taking a massive toll on on people's bodies and minds. And I think this is probably part of the reason, and this is strictly Patty's theory in her head, about why we can't get women to become controllers. We can't keep them and retain them because of this. You know, it's like somebody, 
and and I see it. It's interesting. We have couples, you know, that are married that are controllers, and you know, you kind of watch them do the juggling act between kids and everything else, and the child handoff. You know, one's got a swing, one's got a day. You know, those kinds of things are occurring. But I always I've thought about this a lot over the years, and especially you know, as the president of Professional Women Controllers, it's like, what are we doing? And I, I even met with some people from the, our, the FA's communication office going, okay, what can we do to help get it out there that this is a job, a great job for women? And, you know, we've all been told that although multitasking doesn't really exist, women are extremely good at being able to do lots of different things, right? Yes, so we can, this, we can bear a big figure, mental load. <laughs> right. So, But then you look at it, it's like, okay, um, you're, you're looking at when it comes to family care, And I'm making big generalities here. There are plenty of men out there who are single parents and all those kinds of things. Or or families, you know, just the family unit of trying to, who's going to care for the kids? You know, so there has to be somebody, somewhere, somehow a family has to make a decision. Is somebody going to stay home? Are we going to work? What are we going to do? Okay, so now you put somebody who's now in their early 20s who wants to be an air traffic controller. And then I try to talk to them about, they're like, okay, so what are the... um, uh, what kind of benefits do you get? What about paid family leave? What about this, this, and the other thing? And it's like, so we have great benefits up until it comes to those kinds of things. We've got great retirement. We've got great medical. But when you start looking at how do we support the family unit as as an agency, it's very difficult to do when you're looking at trying to staff things facilities 24 hours. So there's always going to be somebody who has to work a midnight shift. There's always going to be somebody who has to work on the weekends. You know, so when you start making those choices, traditionally speaking, it's going to be the female who's going to stay home, mom. So how do we attract those people to the FAA? Yes. Yes. You're not wrong in a lot of these assumptions that you're you're talking about. And it's interesting because I'm reading a book right now and I'm I'm not all the way through it. But it's called Overwhelmed, and I believe the author is Bridget Schulte. I think that's how you pronounce it. And she was looking at, like, you know, I think she's a Washington Post reporter, and decided to take a look at, like, why are women so stressed out and time poor, and what is going on? And a big part of the book is talking about, like, the exact choices that that you're thinking about, you know, and how all of the things that have to happen within a family get parceled out between men and women. And then how do same-sex marriages fit into that equation and what's going on and how are other countries doing it? You know, and like she even does a comparison at one point, like Denmark versus the U.S. (laughs) And it's just mind-boggling the differences. But yeah, most of that is still traditionally landing on women to to manage the, the home front. Yeah, it's a, I think it's just a fascinating conversation. Um, I did want to share with you one thing. Like, so last year I gave uh, my board of directors the book Lean In uh, for Christmas because one of your questions was what is your, one of your favorite books, and I just love that book. Have you read it? I have. It's been a while. I definitely know the premise, and it's. I feel like in my circles it comes up for conversation all the time. Cause, and it's one of the things, it's so funny because I caught myself having to face my own challenge with that whole thing about leaning, leaning in. Cause I always am telling women, it's like, if, if you're waiting to be asked to do something, you're not going to get asked. So, you know, just, you might as well just stop holding your breath on that one. 
And that's, that does seem to be an issue. And I've actually talked to this at, at my conferences and to my board. And they're like, well, Patty, you know, some, some, she just needs to be asked. I'm like, why? Why do you have to be asked? If you're interested in doing something, why do you want to sit and wait for somebody to come to you? And, you know, and, I, and, and so, yeah, it, it's such a big piece to me because it's like we all want to know 100% of everything we need to know before we go try do, to try to do something. It's like, wait a second, that's never going to happen. <laughs> yes, and it's a big you know, hallmark like, of the imposter syndrome. And I know there's a lot of imposters listening as well where as women – become increasingly successful, like that fear of being found out as a fraud or feel like you're passing every day as an imposter grows along with it. And it's such an insidious, and I say disease, but it's it's not really a disease or illness, obviously. But it becomes really insidious because like as we get more successful, as we achieve more things in life, as we realize more of our goals, we think, oh my God, they're going to figure out like... I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. They're going to catch on. And so, you know, one of the chief, if you start reading about it, and there's a great book by Valerie Young, and I believe the title is The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. And she talks about a lot of the defenses that women use to sort of get out of that hot seat of feeling like an imposter. And one of them is chronically overworking and hoping someone will just notice and wave their magic wand over you. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I can see that though. It, it's funny. It's like we can't accept our own success and I don't know why that is. And it's a society thing, but I watch, you watch successful women on TV and then you watch how they get attacked. And it's like, why, why are we attacking her? You know, and I see that at work too. And in fact, um, I opened my conference this last year talking about why women are not helping women. And it was an interesting conversation because I had a lot of people come up to me afterwards about it. I go, because, you know, I use the, the analogy, it's like, are you the crab in the bucket who constantly, you know, if there's two crabs in a bucket, the one crab, one crab will always pull the other one back in. They, they, nobody's escaping because they keep pulling each other back into the bucket. <laughs> and I said, I go, I really just feel like, a lot of the times we're the crab in the bucket and we should be the ant on the leaf, you know, helping each other across that bridge and bridge that gap. And I said, I don't know where it's from. I don't, I, I don't know if it's a, um, you know, do we still in our heads think we're somehow competing for mates still? You know, I don't know. But it's, it's almost like I feel like women, either we can't support each other or we feel like we're in competition with each other. And I had a woman say this one, and this was probably about five or six years ago. This is a female controller who said this. And she said, Patty, she goes, well, we were talking about where we were going to put some new, new controllers that were coming in. And she actually said in front of a group of people, well, we can't put the, any more girls in here because, you know, girls don't get along. That can't work together. Wow. I just stopped. And I said, that is not, I corrected it. And then later on, I had a conversation with this, this individual. Didn't, wasn't really thinking about what she was saying when she said it. And when we had that conversation, I said, you realize what you just did and what you've said? I said, you said in front of a group of people of mixed genders that an entire gender cannot behave professionally. 
Wow. I go, that's a pretty big statement you just made. And I said, and I really want you to think about what you said. I said, could you also reinforce that concept to every male in there? And I said, you are selling an entire gender short. So, you know, but, it's, but it is something I think that women have to be conscious, consciously have to think about. If we're not empowering each other, we are hurting each other. And we have a big problem with that in this country. Absolutely. I, like. I, I mean, I remember back at, at, I was at the other PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, for years. <laughs> and I, I always remembered, you know, you, you definitely find your way. You find the partners and, and directors that you work well with and you try to get on their projects as much as possible. And I mean, that's natural in any career. And at one point I realized like, how is it someone who's you know, pretty much a feminist, why is it that I hate working for all the female partners? And I just realized it, it, it always was more stressful working for the female partners that were ahead of me. And I always wondered, I, I remember this one partner always wore these like gorgeous stilettos. And I remember thinking if I was hanging off the ledge of a building, I'm pretty sure she would use that stiletto to just individually, like, crush each finger until I fell off. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> and I just, like, I never, and I still can't, I still think about it. And, you know, I still, as I read different things about gender and psychology and communication and things like that. I still am always, I think on some level, trying to piece together, like, why was that? Like, why, why weren't the women ahead of me at least just reaching a hand back? Like, you don't have to give me a free pass. I'm happy to do the work. Right. But like, why did the male partners give me more of a chance on projects than any of the female partners that I worked under? Exactly. So there's still work to be done, isn't there? You know, there's, it's interesting to me because to me, there's just so much work to be done. And I'm in constant awe of the fact that this is 2017 and we're still having the same conversations. You know, it's like, so we're just talking, I feel like we're just talking ourselves around in a circle, but we're not making progress, you know. And, and again, I'll use the FAA as an example on this. So air, female air traffic controllers make up just over 16% in the FAA. So, and that's been that number for years. I mean, for the last decade, we have that, that number is not going up at all. And I, I'm constantly in awe of this, you know. But yeah, it's like, I mean, that's, that's the constant challenge of PwC. So what can we be doing different? You know, obviously, we're not a huge organization, Um but, you know, it's like getting the word out there for young girls to realize that aviation is a career field for them and for them to realize that STEM, and this is funny, too. So, you know, everybody talks about science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, the STEM programs and those kinds of things, which we support like crazy as much as we possibly can. But I will tell you this, um, about, so I don't fall into the stereotype of being good at math or anything like that. <laughs> uh, I, am, I am the exact opposite <laughs> I don't do math in public, you know, it's like if somebody says, hey, Patty, what's 24 plus three, I'd be like, stand by, uh, step away somewhere and get my iPhone out and figure out what is that add up to. I, cause, and, um, and I'll throw this out there, and this is not meant to be racist in any way, but my ongoing joke is, as a younger person was I make my people look bad. 
Because <laughs> when I was growing up, every Asian person that I went to school with was really, really smart and good at math. <laughs> and, and I was not. <laughs> so, I find I, your story I, so fascinating, Patty, because here you are, you're like, I was this wild teenager who was horrible in math letting down my Asian people, and then, like, you end up an air traffic controller, which you're actually doing, like, this really crazy version of almost applied geometry every single moment of your day, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, And there are definitely controllers who will tell you that they do the math problem, they unconsciously do this math problem in their head. And it was so funny, I remember some guy training uh my girlfriend and i were both in training at the same time and i'm listening to him train her and he's literally got a math problem on the board on the whiteboard you know as they're debriefing and and she's telling me about this and i, I go oh my god i go how awful <laughs> i'm like if he would have put a math problem up there on the board i'd be like dude what are you doing like, are you smoking crack it's like i'm not in math class it's like stop it because that's not how i think at all but I was still able to do the job because I'm, I'm not sure. I, I picture things in my head. I'm really visual. So, you know, I literally do picture the three-dimensional kind of thing, you know, happening when when I'm working. But, uh, yeah, I think it is funny. I don't fit into the stereotypes of I, I wasn't st- strong in math. I wasn't strong in science. I wasn't even in a family that was into any of those things. So, yeah, if you were to probably go back and say would patty make a good controller except for the fact that i was bossy i don't know that i would have fallen into any of the uh, the the requirements <laughs> so. that's amazing that's amazing i love that and i have to ask is bossy a requirement like is that i mean i'm sure it's in more veiled terms but is that something that like you're looking for when people are are training to become air traffic controllers. You have to be able to assert yourself you know, in some way, right? Yeah, you definitely have to be able to assert yourself and have a certain level of confidence. And it's an it's an interesting thing that we like I've got we've got you know people who struggle with that and it's hard. How do you how do you build somebody's confidence? You know, you feel like they can do the job, but you still have to have that level of confidence that says I mean, I have to know that, and, and, and the pilot wants to know this too, right? In your voice, I need to know that you are, you are confident in what you're doing. So you better sound confident as well. Because I'll tell you, it's funny. Uh, pilots sense weakness. So, and I've seen it happen. It's like I've seen uh, people in training that they just sound iffy on who's in charge of the sector, right? And so it's funny. You'll actually hear the pilot start to question you know, they'll hear that tone in the voice and they'll start to question, you know, what's going on. So, yeah, you've got to sound like you know what you're doing. Um, yeah. I can believe it. I can believe it. When I started coaching, I was seeing clients in New York face to face. And then eventually a lot of them, because they're busy women and on the go and travel for work or meetings ran late and they would miss half their session, I started working with them by phone. And it was so interesting when I made that switch that when you're actually just listening to someone's voice, how much you can actually hear. And now, eight years later, I I can hear a gulp and I think, okay, that's a thinking gulp. It's, that's not a hesitation gulp. That's not a fear gulp. Like, okay, that's just that I'm thinking and taking a breath. 
Like I can hear those things super acutely when I'm when I'm locked in on someone's voice during a session. So I can only imagine pilots are are picking that up like nobody's business. Yeah. Mhm. Fascinating. Fascinating. And Patty, I want to ask because you have this super intense job that you've had for years and now you're sort of managing. So that gives you a different perspective. How do you take care of yourself on the regular? So like I think for women listening, the type of work you do is is almost exaggerated in the level of like intensity and stress that that women in other professions might be accustomed to. And I mean, women listening, please do not think I'm diminishing your levels of stress, but there is a certain intensity with this job. And so, Patty, I'm fascinated to hear from you how you take care of yourself outside of work. Like, how do you decompress, as you mentioned earlier? Um, hmm. You know, <laughs> it's, I don't know that I've got an answer for the question, Kara, because I, I think it's such a struggle. It is, that's probably one of the hardest questions you could ask because I struggle a great deal with work-life balance, and I'm sure we all do because... I don't know anybody who's bored who doesn't have something to do. So, um, <laughs> I, yeah, it's like, oh, True yeah, story. nothing really. <laughs> it's like, how is that possible? Um, but no, I think uh, one of the biggest things I try to do is first off, I have an amazing husband who is extremely understanding. And when I come home and I'm in a bad mood, I can tell you that I broadcast that mood loud and clear. <laughs> uh, and there is just some downtime that I've got to have. And, uh, and he recognizes that because I don't do anything in a vague way. <laughs> I mean, trust me, when I had a bad day, you will know I had a bad day. In fact, somebody actually told me the other day I have an angry walk. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I go, I, what? I, they go, yeah, you have an angry walk. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, I can't analyze my walk, too. Are you kidding? <laughs> um, so... One of the things I always have to have is I need to have something that I'm looking forward to. Uh, so if that's a, our, our next big vacation, then or if it's a short weekend or something that I can keep my eye on that light at the end of the tunnel, um, because I think those those moments are extremely important. And when I have those moments, I actually will tell my board, like I'm going off the or I'll tell my VP, I'm going off the grid. You know, you're not going to hear anything from me unless it's an emergency for 72 hours, you know, whatever it's going to be. Um, so those are really important to me. Uh, the rest of the rest, I don't know what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I try to sleep, um, you know, but that's kind of, I really do try to sleep a lot. When I have off time, man, I swear I'll sleep for like 10 hours a day or something like that, just trying to catch up, uh, which I know you never do, but um Exercise, I'd like to say that I exercise on a regular basis. That would probably be lying. I, yeah, I, I exercise, but am I, do I have a gym membership? No, because I know that's wasting money. <laughs> I'm not going to go. Uh, try to eat healthy. I would say diet is probably one of the biggest things I control, that I have complete control over. So I actually probably would say that I'm really healthy on that point. But, you know, I, I think the most stressful points in my life are moments I have no control over. You know, it's like, so if I have control over what's happening, I'm actually pretty content. 
so I don't know that I necessarily have stress like that. It's when I have control over nothing that stuff really starts to piss me off. <laughs> so, yeah, I, mean, I guess, does that paint a halfway decent picture? <laughs> yeah, and it paints a really honest picture. And I, I, trust me, I recognize when I was asking you and, and any of the guests I have on this show that being a guest on this show does not mean you have everything 110% figured out, right? Like, it's really, right. this show is about, like, hearing different perspectives from women in all sorts of different jobs, doing all sorts of different things across all sorts of different industries, because I, I really want to hear and understand, like, what is working for women? What is not? Like, what's what's helpful? What's what's not helpful? What are other women doing? Because I think I, I try to be careful of it as a health and lifestyle strategist, you know, that there's this pedestal that you can be put on. Like, I, I see and hear the word guru sometimes in my line of work, and it just it's a title I never want attached to me because I think we're all just trying to figure it out and myself included. There are some weeks where exercise goes out the window there, you know, that I'm constantly trying to, in, in my work, I look at five key areas, right? Like, so I'm looking at diet, I'm looking at rest, I'm looking at exercise, I'm looking at stress management practices, and I'm looking at social relationships. And I tend to personally think of those as like, the core foundational places. Like, it's hard to build a house if your foundation's made out of jello and the foundation is made out of those five areas. And I, but I think it's constantly a battle. Like, there are definitely some weeks, like if I'm traveling, for example, food and me having control over my food is going to be questionable at best, right? So, what right. else can I focus on of those other five to really not have the foundation start to have big gaping cracks in it? Okay, well, I'm traveling, so maybe diet slips a little bit and I do the best I can, you know, eating weird meals in airports and things like that or <laughs> from gas stations. Like, you know, where can I, sometimes I'm like, where the hell can I get a banana? <laughs> What's a girl got to do to get an apple or a banana around here? But then it's like looking at things. So I, I I appreciate your honesty. I guess that's a really long way of saying I appreciate your honesty. And it sounds like you're doing what you can with a, a really wonky schedule, right? Like getting the extra sleep when you can, when you can adjust your schedule, getting some movement in, even if it's not at the gym, looking at your diet and making sure that you're putting good stuff in the gas tank. I mean, those are all the decisions that we have to balance. Absolutely. And Patty, I want to ask you a, a question of a little bit different tact. Okay. How do you define being a modern woman? Oh, good Lord. You know, I've, I've read this question and I still don't have <laughs> your question. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I don't I don't know. I honestly couldn't tell you. It's uh, I don't even know how I how I would define me at this moment because um, I'm actually getting to a, a, a transitional phase in my life in the next couple of years where I'm going to actually retire and we're going to move on to something else. 
so it's kind of funny. I've, although I'm, I'm, I'm 110% invested where I am right now. I'm also, you know, kind of little bits, little parts of my mind actually start venturing off into what it's going to be as I, as I retire. Uh, so I, I will say this, I will say the number one thing for the modern woman is don't let any one thing define you. I think that's the part that scares me more than anything when I watch people. How so? Is, you know, well, my family, you know, I watch, like I watch some people with their kids and it's like their, their life seems to revolve around their children or a lot of people in air traffic I see, it's like their life revolves around air traffic. They, this is their, you know, this is who they are. And I see people who won't retire because they can't figure out what else to do with themselves. You know, um, I, that's, I guess that's the number one thing I would say. It's like, don't, don't limit your, don't pigeonhole yourself and stick yourself into this one role that you can, that's the only role that you can play. Um, it was, it was an ongoing joke there at my facility. They used to call me the administrator because people thought that I had, that I was going to be in charge of the FAA and that that was my goal was to, to be in charge of everything FAA. And I always <laughs> kind of laugh because I'm like, I've, I've never said that. So I don't know where you guys get that, but <laughs> it's kind of a, a weird thing to me, but that the FAA does not define me. Being a controller does not define who I am. And I think that if that becomes you, then you're missing out on a whole lot of other opportunity out there. Got it. I don't know. That's kind of, that's kind of a, an all over the, that's not really an answer. <laughs> but I think I always like to ask this question because I think it's important for the next question or two is I like to get the context for where people are coming from. And so I always like to give people the opportunity to define that context. I think the the other question that's important, and you, you touched on it in terms of not letting not letting your your role become your entire identity. What else would you like to see modern women care about more? I wish women could figure out where they get their power. You know, it's like, somebody needs to write a book on that. It's like, where do you get your power? Because I think a lot of women, and maybe it's a society thing, maybe it's a Western thing, because it, it could be a Western issue. Our power doesn't come from the outside, and I think we forget that. Uh, I've worked with uh, young women who've done enhancements, and there's all, all kinds of other things, which is I have no problem with those kinds of choices. Absolutely. You know, if, if that helps you feel better about yourself and that's great, but that doesn't define you. And I just watch some of these, the way we conduct ourselves. I don't know. I, I just feel like you're, you're trying to distract from one thing to empower yourself in a way with something that's not powerful and it is not long lasting. And so deeply external. Like we have yeah. to figure out how to tap into the, to your point, that internal power, because I know in the work that I do, I am, I constantly have my hair blown back by how much wisdom and intuition women have when they figure out how to finally access it, you know, and sometimes it's just having the space, like having the time and space to sort of slow it down but it is unbelievable. Like sometimes when I, you know, when clients are unwinding all of their health and lifestyle habits 
and a lot of my clients, you know, they're, they're, there's also a lot of creation and, and transition energy. Like sometimes that's on the relationship front. Sometimes that's on the professional front. You know, it might be someone who's the head of the firm that they created and then standing there at the top of Mount Olympus in their career and thinking, is this it? I'm bored now. Like, yeah. And, you know, having to figure those things out and then or, you know, I've had clients that are like, I hate my my husband and I want out. And I've had other clients that are like, I want to have a better relationship. And all of these things feed into who we are. But I'm amazed when and I mean, part of my job is to sort of hold that space like two hours a month. My clients have to show up on time with an open mind and be willing to look at what they want to change in their own life. And so they sort of, you know, set the goals at the beginning of the process. And I sort of help kind of facilitate and, and catalyze those goals with them. But it's so interesting when I ask them to sort of peel back, like, all of the stuff they're doing sometimes. And they have that quiet space. And I can ask them a question that, you know would have been super hard, you know, months earlier and a big complex problem. And then all of a sudden, when they have that space, when they have that clarity, when they have that energy, they're able to like crack into this really complex problem and go, this, this is my next move. And sometimes that next move is sort of terrifying. And then we kind of have to talk about that and how to break it down <laughs> into something less terrifying. But I am, I am awestruck how wise women are and how, how intuitive and wise as well. It's amazing. It is. And it's, and it's funny because we, we don't tap into that enough or we're afraid to tap into it. I'm not sure. But... Um... You know, I just, I, I, I watch some of these young, young women and it's just, it's just part of it makes me sad. Now, trust me, when I reference these young women, when I was their age, was I doing the same thing? Probably. I, I have no idea. Um, but I don't know. It's like they, you lose so the distraction of the exterior is taking away from people listening to what's happening on the interior is yes. what I feel like sometimes. It's like, you know, it's like this is the first way that they, somebody describes you. You know, it's like, is that the way the first adjective that goes in front of your name is going to be? You yes. know, so I guess I, that part, that part kind of makes me sad because I think we, um, the most valuable parts, you know, aren't, aren't being, we're not, I don't know. You know what I'm saying though, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think it's important. I mean, I think we forget as women, like how much work that we have to do on ourselves sometimes because it you know I think some of the generalized notions of you know how division of labor within home that we were talking about earlier we really have to consider like all the things that we're we're trying to manage and not be buried under the rubble of all of those things at the same time and it's yeah. a it's a tough walk, like having to be responsible for everything that we have to be responsible for, work, family, home, you know, whatever other roles. I mean, even even for you, Patty, I mean, 
you really have sort of two professional roles that you're you're juggling at all times and two different sort of walks that you're doing. It's hard to not put yourself last for every woman. And I'm sure so many women listening are probably like, yeah, I put myself last all the time. Actually, I think that's, that is the problem as, care, as, as caregivers. We forget to care about us a lot. And when we do, I feel like we're met with you're selfish. How dare you not put yourself last? Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, actually, I think one of the, the, the best tools I think anybody can have is making sure they give themselves an honest self-assessment. You know, so it, because if you don't look internally every now and then, I think you, you're going to get lost. Yes. What are some tools that have you you found helpful? I know we mentioned Strength Finder. Are there any others that have helped to give you some insight into that? Um, you know, I think it's just over the course of the. So I've done mentor programs and I've talked on this subject a lot. Um, is really just I, I speak on this basically as far as you know, like IDP uh, individual development plans, those kinds of things. I'm sure you work with that stuff all the time. Uh, but when I'm working with uh, people at work and stuff, one of the biggest things I try to get them to really assess, especially when they're looking at promotions or other opportunities, is to really figure out what's holding them back. And I think that's one of the issues that most people have is they they see the obvious things of things that they could place blame on. It's, it's so-and-so's fault over here or um, I can't get, you know, there's just, I can't get picked up for management. I can't do this. I can't do that. I have all these obstacles that are in my way that are, that won't let me get to where I want to go. Right. And I'll sit there and I'll listen to them, tell me all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, so there's a, you know, there's a job over here that's possible. And nine times out of 10, I think we don't do honest self-assessments because we don't include all the right stuff. So it's not just what your qualifications are. It's your values. It's like, how often do we talk about our values when we do a self-assessment? And, and this is the number one reason I bring it up, is because I tell people, they'll be like, well, I can't get into management, or I can't do this, I can't do that. And I'm like, why can't you? And they're like, so-and-so won't do this. And it's always somebody else's fault. But then I'll ask them, it's like, well, how come you won't bid a manager's job over here? Oh, well, because I can't move. So it's not anybody else's fault that you can't get a manager's job. Your values are keeping you from, from applying for that job. And when, so when I'm talking about honest self-assessment, it really is like not just talking about what your skill set is, but your values have a big influence on the decisions we make. And if I'm not willing to move my family because I don't want to uproot my kids, that's not the reason that that's the reason I'm not getting a manager's job because I refuse to move to get one where the where it's being offered. You know, so I don't think we I think sometimes we want we we don't want to look at the whole picture because the whole picture isn't really all that great sometimes. Yes. But I think what you're also talking about, too, is creating more of an internal locus of control as well. Like really yes, looking that's, at, that's, like, that's, you know, this is these are the pieces I can control. Like, it's not that I'm not qualified yes. to be in this position over here. It's to your point, like your values and the decisions that you're making in your life are preventing that. And so taking yeah, that blame off exactly. of other people and just starting to say, like, you get to own it. And that's, you know, I mean, back to your, your question of where do you get your power? I, I think it, 
it starts there sometimes. Like, we don't just get to own the good stuff. We have to own it all. <laughs> right. And, and in a way, it's, it, I would think that that would be a big relief to somebody to realize it's like, it, when you take in all the reasons you're making this decision, you know, if it, if, if it really comes down to because I value my children being happy in school, hey, I think that's awesome. I would think that, in, in a way, I would think that would bring somebody a, some peace of mind. Yes, that it's a conscious decision, an empowered one. Right. Yeah, it's not that you're a victim. It's like you've made a very important decision about your family, which should out, hopefully, you know, I mean, you have that family balance too, you know, but I don't know. It just seems like if you accept all of those things for what they are and what you do have control over, that that can actually make your life a lot less stressful. <laughs> yes, yes. And then I think the next level that, that I see in my world and in my work, you know, one is sort of recognizing how much agency we have in situations, you know, that we can look at our values, we can look at the facts and make empowered decisions. And then I think the next level and what I would love to see, you know, women care more about is how to then be proactive from that place how to really make intentional decisions. Because I think, you know, some of what I see, like everyone's reacting to overwhelm and all these things that are outside, they think are outside their control. And it's like, one, we get to control our reaction. Two, you know, how can we use what's happening to kind of make better decisions in the future? And then three, how can we take that wisdom and that experience that we've been collecting professionally, personally, you know, just sort of walking around breathing as a, as a living, breathing organism every day to then apply everything we learn and, and that growth to how can we make intentional decisions going forward? Right. It's a, it's a tall order, but I know that's something i I would love to see more of in the world. And it sounds like you would agree with me on that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important. And I think you bringing up values is such a great starting point for people. I think if if women listening are like, well, okay, great. Kara and Patty are waxing on about all these like nebulous concepts. I think you really had a, a really profound key in mentioning like looking at your values start there. <laughs> really own those and have those be a, a, a filter for decisions. So Patty, we have talked about so many different things and you have been so generous sharing your experience and your opinions and your ideas on things. Everyone listening is pretty much a frazzled woman, a frazzled type A woman, someone who's feeling like an imposter and someone who might be an overscheduling addict. So knowing that is who is listening, as I'm about to ask you this question, what do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know? If you can leave them with any parting wisdom from your sum total of experience in life, what would that be? Um, 
Gosh. I w- okay, so I would say one of the two hardest things for me to learn how to do, and I still have to work on this, is uh, learning to say no. That's that's actually been one of the hardest things for me to do. And then learning to delegate. And that's extremely hard for somebody who wants to be in control of everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so those are those are my two biggest challenges. But I would say the one of the another thing that I would leave everybody with is if you've got somebody you trust to get feedback from, that I mean will actually give you no Bravo Sierra feedback. You know, it's going to be the the real and honest truth. Uh, cultivate that relationship and have that grow because. I always ask for feedback, and I think people think it's one of those things that I do as a wrapping it up conversation or something, and maybe that it's uh, an issue of trust as well. You've got to be able to trust those people that you're giving feedback to and that are soliciting it from you. Um, but getting that, soliciting feedback and getting feedback, I think, is one of the hardest things to do because nobody wants to give you really honest feedback. They want to sugarcoat it. They want to make you feel okay when you walk away. You know, uh, they don't want to feel like they're giving you negative, but honest feedback is everything. And I, I mean, I tell my employees this, it's like, I can't fix something if I don't know about it. So, you know, it'd be like you, Kara, telling me that Patty, in the interview, you said, um, 75 times. I would want to know that. (laughs) I, if I have said it 75 times, I absolutely have no clue I'm doing it. So yeah, the feedback piece is, man, I cherish feedback that I can get from anybody because it's so hard to get it. Yes. How do you ask for it? Like for women listening who are like, that's a great point. I want to start asking for feedback. What helps you get it more successfully more of the time? I think part of it has to be that first off, you're not going to shoot the messenger. Because <laughs> boy, that'll end that one really quick. That's the hard part. And and so generally when I have people give feedback, and some, so obviously that unsolicited feedback can be pretty tough to take too because you're also not necessarily mentally prepared to receive it. Um, and in those cases, I simply just say thank you. And then I kind of think about it and I'll, you know, figure out what to do with it later. But just, I think letting, just constantly sending that message that you're open to feedback, that you want it. And then when somebody gives it to you, say thanks. Uh, because it's going to take that trust. I think of people, for people to be able to come to you, very big trust if it's unsolicited feedback, uh, but for them to know that you actually are going to take their feedback and listen, you're going to have to prove that to them. Got it. I like your point about gratitude because I think that's something I know even for me personally, like getting feedback sometimes is just, oh God, this is so uncomfortable right now. And it's something that I'm trying to work on. So I I love your reminder about just saying thank you. Like when you get the feedback, you don't have to process it. You don't have to fix it on the spot. You just have to hear it and offer up some gratitude in return. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, that's definitely important. And, And the other thing I always like to remind everybody is that if somebody actually does have the nerve to come and give you feedback, negative, positive, whatever, um, you know, that's, that means that somebody else is probably thinking the same thing. You know, it's like if somebody's actually going to voice an opinion to you about yourself and your performance, it, it's rarely is that the only person on this planet who is thinking that about you. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I would simply say, you know, it is, it should be considered. You should always consider, listen and consider everybody's feedback because, yeah, somebody tells me, and, and I have been told this before, that I'm, that I'm intimidating and unapproachable. 
I actually, I heard this the other day and I said, I know. I said, I've been told that before. I said, but I don't know how to fix it. I go, I've been told this my whole life. And I said, I don't know how to fix it. I go, the patty you see before me is all I got. I said, so, you know, I go, I can't walk around grinning like an idiot. I'd look stupid. I go, Anna, be insincere. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of a funny thing. It's like, and, and literally I, I had, I honestly, this happened about two weeks ago. Uh, somebody did sit me down and tell me they wanted me to give, give me that feedback. And I looked at them and I said, I know. I go, do you have any help for me or any suggestions? I said, because I don't have anything. <laughs> I don't know what to do to fix it. And it's funny because he even said, he goes, I don't know what to tell you, Patty. He goes, because you're just Patty. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, it's like, it's it's a weird thing when somebody says that to you. It's just like, well, uh, you know, what do you what do you do? It's like, besides just constantly tell them, it's like, hey, I'm here for you. I'm approachable. And not act like you're stalking them. <laughs> and when you say stalking, now I just have this visual image of you like power walking like the Terminator, like towards someone. <laughs> <laughs> you and your aggressive walk. <laughs> that's funny because that's not too far off. I am. I'm, I'm also a fast walker and I have a really heavy step. So it's funny. Uh, at work, people can hear me coming. <laughs> I, I wear heels and people can hear me coming and it's so funny because when I wear when I wear shoes that don't make noise like if I wear a pair of Toms to work on a weekend nobody can hear me coming and I have scared the crap out of people on numerous occasions not on purpose because <laughs> <laughs> they're just used to you barreling down a hallway <laughs> yeah but I told them I said see I go you guys should appreciate this I said I'll never sneak up on you you always know when I'm coming <laughs> I guess when you wear your toms, you need to start wearing a bell. <laughs> it is kind of funny because I actually started making noise when I would walk up behind people. Like I'd whistle or I'll hum or I'll make some kind of noise that lets people know that I'm, I'm walking around behind them. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. It is. Oh, yeah. oh Patty. The Terminator, this... you're not too far off on that. <laughs> Patty, this has been such a fantastic conversation. I I can't thank you enough. If women listening want to learn more about you and your work, where's the best place that they can go? Uh, well, you can always go to the website, our PWT website, if they wanted to go there. Um, and my contact information is on that as well. Thank you so much for taking this time and sharing your perspective and sharing your ideas. This is, I believe, how we as women can grow and, and start to just know that we're not in it alone. So thank you. I right. deeply appreciate it. everyone this is Kara again thank you so much for being here and dropping by Le Vital Core Salon I just wanted to let you know that you can find all of the links and resources that we mentioned in this episode over at Le Vital Core Salon L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N dot com And new shows usually roll out on the second and fourth Wednesdays of the month. But if you don't want to have to remember that, 
I want to encourage you to hop on the email newsletter. It comes out twice a month and the links to each show will come directly to your inbox as part of that newsletter. So highly encourage you to to check that out. And don't be stingy with this podcast. If there was something in this that you really dug, please help women out. Let's all raise the tide for each other. Please share this show with the women in your life, whether it's online or you send it in an email or you share it from iTunes, whatever works best for you. But please help me get the word out because inspiration is really just as important as perspiration. Don't forget that. Before you all bound into the rest of your holiday season, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to my producer Craig Snyder, to my VA Darlene Gonzalez, who is helping make everything slicker behind the scenes with me, and Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone for writing my awesome theme song, and the High Dials for performing it. Thank you all. This show would not be what it is without all of your contributions. And I'm still playing by FAA rules with today's episode. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let the bull shizzle or burnout slow you down. <laughs> Me and my potty mouth will be back next time. Season's greetings, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>